Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. So as they say, hindsight is usually 2020. And now that we are both PhD graduates, uh, we want to offer our thoughts on some of the things we wish we would have known before entering our PhD program. Um, so we really want to extend this conversation. But now that I finally finished this process last year, I feel like we both have a wealth of knowledge that we can share with people who are currently parents and PhD programs. And so I have to preface this with, and I admit, um, so I came to Wayne State University strictly because it was the college that was closest to my home, really. Uh, this is mm-hmm. the extent of my investigation into the process. So there's that. Basically, I had a pretty uneventful, lackluster uh, BA career. I went back for my master's degree, and it hadn't really occurred to me to even approach a PhD program, but I did have some really good mentors at Mary Grove College in Detroit. And I remember one of my mentors, Dr. Levin said, Aaron, you know, you're really good at this. Have you thought of pursuing a PhD? And I remember clearly saying, no, I never have. But now that you mentioned that, it sounds kind of appealing to me. Why not just go for it, right? So Judith, were you a bit more intentional when you were applying to PhD programs? Can you like even backtrack and tell me a little bit about what, what led you to Wayne State? Was it just the sort of geographical location? Was there something, um, I feel like there's a connection between some of the things you were studying, which I want to say, but I wonder if you were a little more intentional about your process going into the program from the start, and particularly the Wayne State University program. I would say yes and no. Um, for me, it was also definitely geographically interesting. Um, I So I was in Germany at the time. I applied to six schools. Uh, the schools that I applied for were um, Wayne State and then Michigan State, uh, U of M. And then I also applied, I think, at the University of Chicago, University of Illinois, and there was one other one. And so I was definitely looking for schools in the Midwest because my husband was from the Detroit area and we were trying to relocate here. So that was sort of the way in which I selected these six schools. I thought that it would be advantageous to apply to more, but this was just, I, I don't think I really felt up to doing a whole lot more. And, you know, every time you pay a f- application fee and things like that. And so I was trying to keep it somewhat limited. Four of the six schools that I applied for required the GRE uh, in English subject test. And my background was strictly in American literature. So, and I think 80% of the subject test is actually about English literature And I was not able to look at a poem and say whether it was Byron or Tennyson or Marlowe or Chaucer. Um, But listen, you sound like you sound like you know what you're talking about. But I 100% understand where you're coming from on that. I did actually take that subject test and I just wanted to like cry because, as you said, so much of it was like early modern, which is not our area of expertise. And I only remember there was one question which I knew I got that one and it was um, Gertrude Stein and I was like, green glass, the green glass. And I'm like, oh my God, I know one. So for sure. So did you end up taking that GRE subject test? No, I did take the test, um, but I did not do well on it. I think I landed in like the 29th percentile or something like that. And the, uh, that's a little, that, that shows you how much I care about test results that I still remember that 10 years later, but, um, (laughs) right. I ended up, so I was rejected from the four schools that required the GRE subject test in English almost immediately. And I'm not saying that there, you know, there aren't other reasons that I wasn't maybe qualified to go to those schools, but those were out of the question right away. I got accepted into Michigan State and Wayne State University, Wayne St- but Michigan State didn't offer any funding. Um, I think that, and I remember, if I remember this correctly, I was much more interested in the program at Michigan State. I felt that the classes were, seemed more interesting to me. I think I was more excited about them. But I was also in a place where I was in Germany. I was enrolled in a master's program. I had very 
sort of close relations with multiple professors at the university in Germany. And I had the offer. I had the it works a little bit differently in Germany, but I had the opportunity to get a PhD in England in um, in Germany. And I would not have had to pay for that. So I was not going to come to the United States and pay for a PhD program. So the content of the program actually was the least important factor. Those were the factors that I considered, the content of the program, the location, and the funding. And I think ultimately the funding was what um, won. (laughs) No, we have to make these very sort of logical and money-based economic decisions, right? Because something that I also wanted to bring up, no one in my family, my close related family, um, went to graduate school. Now, I do have an older brother. He didn't grow up with me. I guess it might have like made sense for me to discuss some of this with him when I'm, again, in hindsight, looking back, see if you have any family members or friends that have gone through the process. But I didn't know about funding. Okay, Mm -hmm. I know that is just like ridiculous, (laughs) but I had no idea. And so Wayne State accepted me. And then right away you get this um, letter from about FAFSA, financial aid. And so I was like, okay, um, sure, I guess I'll apply for this. Not knowing a lot of things happened after that, but I did take some of that money apparently. And so I am finally in the process of paying off some of my student loans for my master's. And I'm like, this is so much higher than I remember. Well, to the tune of about $10,000, I had accepted as far as like living expenses or something like that. I don't remember because it was so long ago. Yeah. So there is an extra 10K on my student um, loan from the very first year of Wayne State. Now, this is a very bizarre situation, but it was the first week of class. And I think I might have relayed this on the program earlier But so I was not funded. I was going to pay all of this through loans and then probably at quadruple the amount I owe now. But our director of um, the grad program came up to me and said, something strange has happened. Someone dropped out of the program and I have a spot for funding. Are you interested? And I was like, of course. I was like so pleased because that went from, you know, I would have had to pay for everything out of pocket. And so this is comes back to the idea that I really had no idea that funding was an option for me. I didn't know that I could negotiate for funding. I not only had um, no idea about like applying for funding, but I came with none. And so that's another thing that I think had I would have known, I really would have investigated what types of funding opportunities were available and not just for the nine month contract, right? Because we, our contract was quote unquote, fairly generous, I think, for a grad program and that we did get benefits um, such as optical, dental. And I had my whole family on my benefits, which was, you know, kind of a lot of people, but still the stipend we received. So then we had our um, tuition covered and then we got a $15,000 stipend, which for me was okay because I had another partner living with me. But I would recommend to anyone that is maybe in a similar situation or different, you really have to research because the $15,000 stipend is just for those nine months. Then what's going to happen after the summer? Can you find suitable teaching assignments to sort of carry you through? And I felt like we always got that at Wayne State, but I had no idea going into that, that how, what things would look like for me and my family financially. I didn't spend a lot of time breaking it down or thinking about what I was going to be living on from week to week. And at the time my husband was working maybe at like Home Depot at an hourly wage. I mean, we had some pretty tough times for a little bit early on. So I should have and would have liked to research that a little more fully before I said, sure, yeah, I'll be a student, you know, for the next 10 years, right? So did you have a lot of opportunity to teach over the summer? Because I don't remember doing that, but now I don't know if I just didn't uh, take the opportunity. I actually did. And it was one of my favorite times to teach at Wayne State. So I got to teach a survey of American literature a few times. I also taught a survey course of African-American literature, I think, two or three times in the summer because the full-time professors, the tenor track folks are off then, right? So it really was pretty great. I enjoyed those summer classes also um, because a lot of teachers take CEUs. They have to do their continuing education unit courses over the summer. So the students were usually pretty on point. A lot of them were already working as teachers in the field, and I enjoyed those classes. There, There were even other opportunities that I think were really meaningful to me. I ended up taking on some work for 
It's like a four-week summer course for people that were first-gen college students going into the fields of engineering. They might have been first-gen. I think they were typically underrepresented. So that was pretty cool. And it was like a four-week course of just like, this is what you can expect in college English. They were not credit courses, but it was just to give them kind of an orientation of taste of what they could expect in our composition classes. And then I also worked with the McNair Scholars over the summer. This was for, ironically enough, GRE prep, but not for the GRE subject. But the McNair Scholars program is awesome, too, because it's for students who, again, are like first gen minority students, people that might not be typically represented in graduate school. Wayne State had this awesome program for them to take this class. I did English. Um, Another person, of course, took on the math to kind of prep them for the GRE test. They were allowed to, they received different funds to go visit different graduate schools and tour them. And it was just a really great program. So I had both of those as well. So I always felt really kind of busy in the summer, which my family didn't like. Again, when you talk about the sort of family time, summer ended up being a pretty busy time for me for teaching. So it meant less time for like outdoor activities with the kids. But it also meant, you know, if I did two or three classes, I was making a couple extra thousand dollars every summer. Plus added bonus for anyone that is in that teaching assistant position, you want as many of those classes as you can get on your resume, right? Yeah. That's, I remember one summer that I taught a couple of classes and one was a regular composition class, I think, and one was a a women's lit class. And so that was an interesting experience and it kind of really helped with getting some of that teaching experience that's out that was closer more closely related to what I was actually uh writing my dissertation on so that makes a lot of sense Uh, but some of the other things that you're talking about I did not realize were possible and I also uh just now thinking back spent I remember that I spent a couple of my summers actually early on in the program going back to Germany to visit my family so that was a reason why I wasn't able to take those opportunities You need that time, I think, to recharge too, right? To like get back. And especially for you, I mean, my family is like literally down the street. I can't imagine being a younger person abroad, you know, away from the family for that extensive amount of time. So that makes sense. I'm glad now that I did it, especially from this is a little bit of a tangent, but especially for my daughter, it was great to spend some time with the grandparents when she was little, when I was able to travel like that, because now I'm not. And So I really miss the ability to just pack my bags and go to Germany for four weeks or six weeks at a time, which it doesn't really make a lot of sense to go for shorter than that. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad that I was able to do that then. For sure. So back to the conversation about what else we wish we would have known. (laughs) There's a lot. I feel like the more we unpack, I'm like, oh, I should have done that. And that's the nature of life, I suppose, as well as your scholarly development. But I just feel like there was a lot that I should have investigated. So let's talk about you for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually sort of gesturing towards this. I remember you had read um, Middlesex, right? And that sort of connection to Detroit. And I was like, that's so cool. Having grown up here basically my whole life, right? And having three out of four grandparents that worked in factories around the automotive industry, I had no idea that Detroit was kind of this place that other scholars were so interested in and that Detroit was important in literary history. And I know, again, that sounds ignorant, but that's what you go to graduate school for. And so when when I met people like you and other students that were like, yeah, we like Detroit, like it's interesting. There's a lot to talk about here. That just kind of blew my mind because I grew up here and a lot of the things that I thought were kind of depressing or whatever about living in the shadow of decay and rebirth and resurrection um, were actually intriguing. So I was just remembering, I think it was our first class, you were working on something related to Middlesex or a continuation of perhaps your master's work. Am I wrong in that memory or am I kind of close? No, you're right about that. I did write my master's thesis on Middlesex. I was looking at um, identity and ethics or something like that. Um, (laughs) And I think that that wasn't necessarily something that I was looking to continue specifically. I did have an idea. I did come in with a sense of what my dissertation was going to be. And I don't remember right now what that was, what that idea was. Um, but once I got to Wayne State and once I started taking classes, n- none of it really 
sort of worked with that idea that I had. And so I had to regroup a bunch, a couple of times. And part of it was because of the fact that I was trained in a European American studies program. So we were looking at American culture from the outside perspective. And that really shapes the kinds of questions that you ask. And so once I came into the program and I started taking classes, I really kind of had to relearn how cultural studies and literary studies works from from within the United States. And so that, I think, slowed me down a little bit and made it harder for me to to readjust. I do I sort of had this idea when I came in that I and I think you mentioned this too. I think you were thinking about this too that I wanted to really use my classes toward my dissertation. I my goal was to know by the end of the first semester have a rough sense of what my dissertation was going to be and then to start writing seminar papers that were chapter drafts. And that just did not work out at all just because of how different the approach was. And I think that would have been helpful for me to just kind of be aware of ahead of time and to have a better understanding of what I was getting myself into. That's actually what I wanted. That was one of my things I wish I would have thought of. I didn't think of my class in that way at all. And no one told me to. And so I've actually passed that on to other colleagues that are working on their PhD work. I'm like, look, if you can make those classes work for you. But I didn't know that. And and then as you mentioned, the tone or the vibe in our department was there, we just take one class and it would be so different than what I did the next semester that they weren't always in a real good conversation. Mm -hmm. And that would have been smart. This is something that I really wish someone would have told me going into the very first class. Look, this seems early on, but listen, try to get a kernel, an inkling of what it is you want to do and try to make every class work for your dissertation. So over the course of two years, I know I took eight separate seminar courses. And if you think about that, even if I used like half of those, I would have come to the dissertation process with like four drafts of chapters already done. I can't believe I didn't think of this because even if they weren't the best seminar papers, whatever, it's a starting point and a chapter draft of 20 pages would be pretty awesome to build on moving forward. And you'd have some of that reading done. You could include some of the reading you had done in that class as part of your QE list. But I feel like it'd be in a good spot to help other people through the process now, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Once you're, once you're through it, it's a lot easier. And, and, but at the same time, you, a lot of the advice, a lot of the things that we're talking about now, I heard throughout the program and it just, it, you have to hear, you have to hear it a lot of times. It's kind of like a lot of the things that you hear about being a mom, right? The people, exactly. tell you, people tell you these things, but you don't know what that really means until you're there and until you have to do it yourself. Um, you know, and another, another piece of advice like that, we already mentioned this. One thing that I wish I would have known before starting the program or while I was in the, in coursework was that you do, at least in our field, you don't have to read every word of every text. Um, (laughs) You don't like you, you know, and I'm not saying don't read it at all. um, But you know, what I did once I got to the dissertation stage, uh, and I actually wanted to talk about that a little bit more too. But once I got to the qualifying exam and the dissertation stage, I got to the point where I would pull one or two book reviews and read those first. And not I'm not saying instead, but read those first so that I kind of get a sense of, okay, what am I really looking for in this book? What is the, you know, the main points are summarized and then read the introduction and then pick one chapter to read. And then you're, you know, that works pretty well. Then you have a pretty clear sense of where you can talk intelligibly about the book, I think. That's a really good idea too. <laughs> I mean, I guess to a certain extent, I did that with novels I was reading but why didn't I do that with a more difficult theoretical text? That would have made sense to right. have some sort of framework. I think that's, again, working smarter so I can say, okay, I know what I'm looking for here. Rather than just delving into some of these really dense theoretical texts, um, nothing really prepares you for that. It is a lot like motherhood in that, right? That yeah. You can talk about it. You can go to seminars about writing a dissertation, but it doesn't really make sense until you're actually sitting home alone at your table, 
trying to figure it all out. So yeah. I agree with you. That's a very good comparison. So you also had an idea. You said that maybe you weren't as aware of what an independent study, what that could do for you as far as QE prep. And I honestly had no idea. Uh, I did take an independent study in my master's program over the summer, but I did not know that was available really. That was never offered to me necessarily as part of the PhD experience. What were you thinking about with that? Yeah, I think that's something that people started doing after I was done with coursework. So I came in with a master and then we needed, I think, 30 credit hours, but right. all of the classes were four credit hours. So you had to do one. So you basically had to do, you got to 28 and then you needed two more credits, but you, all the classes were four credits. And so they, I, that's what I did. And I was frustrated at the time because very little, because there was no way to cut down on those hours based on the master's pro. I don't know if my master's classes weren't, didn't figure in, or if this was already, I don't remember if this was already sort of like the trimmed version, but I just was frustrated that I still had to take so much coursework. And then at the same time, the coursework didn't, very little of the coursework actually ended up in my QE list. So I was, this is, this is a funny side note too. I ended up selecting a topic that I heard one of our colleagues give a paper on at a conference who had taken a class with our advisor one or two semesters before I got to Wayne State about feminism and post-feminism and feminist theory. And I heard her give a paper on post-feminist theory and sex in the city. And I got really the movie and I got really, really interested in that. And so I, and I ended up going to the advisor and asking for the reading list from that class. And that was my starting point for the QE. So I started something entirely new after I was already done with coursework, or at least like a third or something of the theory section was completely all new things. And so if I had known that I had the option of doing a two credit independent study, I really would have been able to use my time a lot better than to take another four credit hour class that then didn't make its way into my qualifying exam list anyway, after all. And so that was something that once I saw other people doing that, I was very, I was like, why did I not know that that was an option? I totally would have done that. So, yeah. And that probably jives with other people that are in our field. I'd love to hear about the process for other PhDs, if this is similar, um, because what I read, 50 novels, does that sound right? 40 to 50 novels? Yeah, at least. Right, right. Over like six months. And I, and I am a nerd and I read them because I like reading novels. But that part of it to me was a little bit easier in the sense that like I can read a novel. So like every week I tried to read one novel and one theoretical text. And you know, the theory texts always went by the wayside because I can dig in and I remember reading like different things relating to gender and sexuality, but they're kind of spanning the 20th century, right? Just like all these different like touchstone yeah. seminal texts, but they're they're hard too. Like they're not always easy, yeah. but I was able to kind of dive into those. And then I think I probably had about, I think I added 10 to 20 films as well to give like sort of the cultural reference. And that was fun, but it always came back to those theoretical texts. And yeah. it's just a lot. And yeah. it is, you can, I think, manage it. But at the same time, I always felt like I had a book wherever I was. I'd be sitting yeah. in the bleachers at a swim lesson with a book. I'd be in the car with a book. And exactly, like if I would have known that I could have been getting credit for that or creating that list maybe ahead of time, because the other thing is it was all new reading. There wasn't really anything on my, I had to read everything almost from scratch. There wasn't anything on my list where I was like, oh, I already did that in class. I think oh, most so of my- Oh, you were in the same boat. Yeah. And it was all from scratch. I don't think there was much on there that I was like, oh, right, we just read that two semesters ago. It's fresh in my mind. So it was like reinventing the wheel. And that idea of being able to prep out and use that independent study seems really, really smart. I just, it's like you said, I would see these things after the fact and go, darn it. Why, why didn't I do that when I was working on this? So that's definitely a great idea. Another thing that I've given some thought to after the fact, of course, is if going into the program from day one, I might have given composition some consideration. At Wayne State, our English department is divided up into literary majors, composition majors, and film majors. And I've thought about this a little bit. 
I wonder if if I would have chosen composition, I would have been able to make some of my experiences in the classroom more meaningful and part of my dissertation work. What I mean to say is in the composition field, our colleagues would think about teaching writing to students. So they'd often identify a problem that needed to be addressed in the classroom. They would review the research, of course, and then they'd come up with an interesting intervention or a way of tackling that problem. And then they would, of course, have to go through the process of IRB paperwork. Um, But once they did that, they could actually use what happened in their classroom as part of their research. And I think there's something really smart about that. They had great work. I think they learned a lot about teaching how students, helping students to write better and be more thoughtful about it. We had a lot of great work coming in about metacognition and things like that. I like what I did. I think the work I did helped me learn a lot about my field. But there is, I think, an argument for that other side of things to do that like research-based analysis and inquiry. Am I I way off? I mean, I, I loved what I did, but I saw people kind of completing things in a much more efficient and logical way than it seemed like I was doing. I saw that too, for sure. And I think another thing to keep in mind in that context is we already talked about how taking classes, how you should make the classes that you take work for your for your dissertation. But in those scenarios, it was also possible to make the classes that you teach work for your dissertation. And I don't think that that was necessarily the same for us, it, because of the way that the composition department was structured and the classes that we were asked to teach and the the guidelines that we had for teaching those classes, um, it was not possible to include text that we were working on for a dissertation or anything right. like that. And so th- those are two factors, I think, that fact that figure into how long the, comp- the time to completion, if you will. Another, you know, at the same time, and I actually listed this separately, I wish that I would have known that the average time to completion actually is closer to seven years in the humanities than it is to the five years that the maximum amount of funding suggests. Like we had this limit, you could get, if you were funded, you could get up to five years Um, And that was it. And to me, that suggested that I should be done after five years. And just, you know, knowing what I know now, I just looked up, uh, just for this episode, I looked up a U.S. News and World Report article from last year that said, that gave these numbers, right? So the average is just over seven years for a PhD in the humanities. And so that made me feel a lot better about... um, about the time that I took to complete my degree. Considering composition as a field is not a consideration that I ever made. That was not something that I was interested in at any point. Um, I would not have done that. I sometimes wish that I had done a better job keeping an eye on the job placements, or uh, not the job placements, keeping an an eye on the um, MLA job list and the postings. What are the fields that people are hiring in? And we already talked about this, I think, in in an earlier episode. And the other thing that kind of plays into that, that I would have liked to get a graduate degree in a related field. As I was saying earlier, I kind of went from English to doing a lot of feminist studies and gender studies. And so once I hit the job market, I very quickly realized that my dissertation really isn't focused on literature enough to apply for English jobs or to be a good candidate for an English job. And at the same time, they weren't, um, I didn't have qualification to teach a gender, to apply for gender studies jobs. And so, because, you know, there are people that have actual degrees in gender studies. So, you know, it would always have been hard to, to apply for those jobs. However, I feel like if I had a graduate certificate in gender studies, that might have made it might might have made me a more likely candidate for those positions. Right. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And also keeping in mind that we are the PhD in parenting podcast. I just love that your daughter has joined us for this episode. Which brings me to my next consideration that I did not think about as much 
because I assumed it would be available, which is childcare options for graduate students on campus. I was shocked and dismayed to find out that there was some daycare options for our undergraduate students on campus, but that those were not available to graduate students with children, which I don't understand why everyone couldn't just be sort of housed in the same childcare unit. But it was a real odd situation because we, I and you and other graduate students are at an age where a lot of families and people are considering having children graduate school, right? 27, 28, 29, in my case, a little bit older. But at any rate, you know, I was just shocked that there wasn't any childcare available because at even some of the community colleges I was serving as an adjunct professor, they had on-site childcare. And they're like, oh yeah, if you want to leave your um, your daughter here, that's great. You know, it was, you have to, it's a, there's a caveat is that they have working professionals, but then they also have students who are like working there as well. I didn't mind that. Right. And I thought that was really awesome. And it was not expensive. So I wish I would have maybe considered if our school did have that available. It just didn't even occur to me to research that because I just assumed it would be there because that just seems like something that would be, you know, it's an R1 university. We would assume it might be available. And I'm not trying to ridicule the college, but it just seemed to me to be very strange. And this It's a huge campus sprawled out over acres, I think like 200 acres over the city of Detroit. We don't have like one space that graduate students could possibly have um, for childcare while we're there, you know, studying. Um, That would have been really nice for me to be able to bring my daughters or son, have them hang out for three or four hours while I taught a class, maybe even gone to the library, stop by a nurse if I needed to. But that just wasn't really available for any of us. So that was something if I were a student now, I'd go back and I'd I'd probably push on that a little bit more. And I feel like there was a conversation with our union about this, but I would, I would probably be a little more vocal about it now. Now that I'm older, I think I'd be a little more assertive and vocal and be like, no, you need to make this happen for us. I was actually on the committee uh, with the, I was actually working with the union to try and the year that we, that they negotiated that the new contract, um, to try and get the university to give us access to the childcare. And they were not willing to work with us. It was a long back and forth. And the new contract did not have any, if I remember correctly, did not have any provisions for us to be able to use the childcare center on campus. It's not that we didn't try. It's not for lack of trying. You know, the union did. And they, you know, they negotiated a great contract that year. So there was a lot of other things that, a lot of other positive things that came out of that. But that's another thing to think about, too. You know, you ha- for places where you have unions, you do have the option to work with the union to negotiate your contract. So that's something to consider as well. Right. That became really important for one of my postings. This was an oddball thing, but I do have the union and Tara Forbes to thank for this at the time. I had a post that was actually a 12-month GSA position at the Writing Center. So I worked for 12 months, but I was only paid for nine months. And I said, that's really weird. Why is that? And they said, well, that's just the way it always is. And I brought it up to the director of graduate studies. And she said, well, that's really something you need to take up with your union. And I said, okay. And so Tara and the union worked for us. Um, They had to back pay like 30 of us with that idea that we had a union, knowing the union, talking, maybe if you can find time to go to some of those union meetings or figure out who who is available to speak to you, that would be another thing to research because that has been instrumental for a lot of us getting more rights. Because I believe before you and I were there, you did, I don't even know that GTAs actually received benefits. I'm pretty sure that was something that our union oh, fought really? for. Yeah. Yeah. They they won that. I think it was within maybe the five or 10 years before that we got there. So before that, oh, okay. nothing, you know. Well, that was that was really great. And I took I I'll admit that I took that for granted a little bit um, just because I don't know why um, coming from Germany. I think I just didn't realize that some of those things had to be so hard fought for in the United States. And so once I got off of the health insurance that we had at at Wayne State and things like that, I realized just how excellent really some of the some of the benefits were that we got. So that's a really 
good key point, though, for any student out there that's considering coming to the United States from abroad, that some of these things that may seem so obvious to other people around the world (laughs) aren't always available here. And so that might just be something to keep in mind. If you are coming to the United States for a doctoral degree, there are certain things that we don't always offer, which is sort of frustrating for many of us. So moving on, is there anything else that you thought like you wish someone would have told you? I love that point that you brought up about the timeline. I really wish someone would have talked to me about that because I felt really awful when that five-year mark went and I was nowhere close to being done. When you say seven years, that means I was really only off by like maybe a year and a half. So that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Exactly. (laughs) And maybe to say, well, you know, I have four kids, so maybe that makes sense, right? Uh, Again, in hindsight, I had a lot of pressure on myself. But is there anything else that you wish someone maybe would have talked to you about? No, I think think we covered my points. Did you have anything else? Again, I wanted to make my graduate school experience as meaningful as possible. And I often heard that phrase, publish or perish. So publish, I did. And I'm not saying that to brag, but I published quite a few things during the time I was in graduate school. I should have been maybe a bit more deliberate about where I publish things or maybe where I spent my attention and time. Not to say there's nothing that I'm in that's like terrible. In fact, some of them I'm really proud of. But I think I could have been a bit more choosy about where I spent my time because for a long time I was just like, whatever came my way, I'd say, sure, yes, I'll do that. I'll do that. I will write three encyclopedia entries for free. Yes, I will do that. I took on some, I'm like an editorial advisor on a couple of collections by one of the large publishing firms here on like three different volumes of short fiction. I was like, yes, I will do that. I will do that. But that's my name. That's something on my resume. And I don't know, I was reading something maybe in the last year, which was like, I don't know if all those experiences are as valuable as I thought they would be, because the gist of what I was reading was like, you know, unless it's like a peer-reviewed journal, forget about it. But I sort of disagree with that, because I think anything when you're in a field related to literary studies counts for something. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, you're actually much more connected to the publishing world. I think sometimes getting something published, you know, you do some work for an encyclopedia that's with a large publishing firm, I think that can bolster someone's self-esteem. And I think you have to start somewhere. So do you think it's sort of wasteful to get as much published as you can? I don't know that I would say that get as much published as you can is a right probably is not. a perfect approach. However, like you mentioned the encyclopedia articles, and I remember that I did a couple of those too. And I remember our advisor really selling me on that idea by saying it's a really great exercise to summarize and synthesize information. And so that's a good, I think that's a good writing exercise. So it's good to write in that other genre. I think book reviews can be helpful because if you can find uh, a book to review that you're reading anyways, that's a that's a great way to sort of make to use that to your advantage, right? You're you, you're reading the book anyway. You're writing up your notes. Uh, you're halfway to where you want to be with a with a book review to publish. What I did was I published one of my dissertation chapters is published. And then I have one other chapter that I thought was going to go into the dissertation that actually ended up not making it. So it's still sort of closely related. It's in a journal that my research engages with. That was a beneficial approach. I think that worked well to have one, like in our field, again, to have one article from the dissertation and then one other thing. But I was not, I, I'm not a prolific writer like you are. So it wouldn't have been possible for me or it wouldn't have been reasonable for me to try and write other things that weren't going into the dissertation. I was trying very hard to publish no more than one chapter from the dissertation because I thought I might publish it as a book. But something that you said was really smart. I did not. So I think I also wrote like five book reviews because I found out that I was kind of good at the genre of writing. And I was like, oh, cool, I can do this. But the books that I read had absolutely 
zero to do with any of the work I was doing. So then there is that added labor of reading a 200 page book. That's a and lot. taking notes. And they're not usually, again, it's not like reading the latest bestseller and writing a fun book review. I do want to mention that Judith's article is like in one of the premier journals. So that was also very strategic and very awesome that I remember talking about this and our advisor said, you know, what is the journal that you want to see your work in? And that was it. And it's like the top, it's like the best journal for that subject. So that was pretty awesome watching that happen. So there's something to be said for being mindful and like setting high goals and kind of thinking about, I remember you saying that. And so my dissertation is on short fiction. And so there aren't as many journals on short fiction, but I thought about that and like, what are the two or three journals that I'd want to see my work in regarding short fiction? So. And I think in that context, it is helpful to just kind of have an open mind and start sending your chapters out early. So I, I send out my theory chapter I think maybe two years before I defended my dissertation. And so I would have had time for it to get rejected and to send it somewhere else. I came up with a list of these are the journals that I most engage with. So I was, I started by looking at what journals am I reading? What are articles that I'm reading that are going into my dissertation? And those were at the top of my list. And so I just started sending, sending it out early. So that I would have time if it got rejected by my top choice, I would be able to move down to my second choice. Right. And still the article and the article published the same month that I defended my dissertation, which was kind of fun. So that is very cool. Yeah. So that that worked out well. And it does take a little bit of courage. I think it did take me a lot of courage to send it there. And I had taken another seminar paper and just send it out. And it came back with the feedback of like, this looks like a seminar paper, which it was. <laughs> right, so, right. No, I've had that so too. It, <laughs> so it doesn't always work out, but um, yeah, just to send out that, send out that one chapter from your dissertation and see what happens. And that way that's the most polished chapter in my dissertation because I got feedback from it when I did the journal, I got two peer reviews and then there was some editorial feedback. So that's a wonderfully polished chapter in my dissertation where I got additional feedback on top of what my dissertation committee was providing. So that was great too. That was another great thing about that. That's very, that's very, a very good strategy again. And I think I was told something I remember early on in my master's degree, just being so eager and sending out something that was dreadful and feeling just so (laughs) I'm like, Oh my God, I looked at it again. I was like, I can't believe I did that. But I was so green, you know, I was a novice. And I was at a special as the National Endowment for the Humanities. I got to go on this trip to Concord, Massachusetts, and there was all these other community college professors. And it was a really great experience. But I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get published. And I'm like, you'll get it. You just get it one day. You figure out what it is you need to do. And I remember being like, I don't know. This just sounds like some mystical <laughs> moment. It's not going to happen for me, but I know what they mean now. And it can't be a seminar paper and it can't be really derivative, which I feel like early master's work and probably really early dissertation work even is like super derivative. It's like, I'm just going to, you know, think about this other thing that this really smart person said. Um, And so that idea of being original, it is possible. There's always a new way to see or think about a text. And then the great thing about cultural studies is there's always a new cultural representation that we can think about and look at. Um, I don't want to go off too off uh, topic, but I know that the L word was in part of your dissertation. Now there's a reboot, right? And I'm so like, so I'm curious to see where that went or if they dealt with any of the same issues that you wrote about. So that's a great thing about our field. There is always a way of thinking about new things. She is just so cute and talkative. (laughs) I love it. Um, So you did. I was really excited because I actually have a hack for this episode and this is my first hack. I love it. And and you made me think of it because I have been talking a lot about writing and I had a pretty good productive summer with writing. I just finished up. I got my chapter done. It's good. It's finito. I'm finishing up another, um, not a chapter, but just an essay for a journal from a dissertation, which is also fun and yet weird to go back into. But one of my big struggles as a writer is proofreading. Um, This is ironic because I actually spent quite a bit of time as an editor and proofreader. 
And I, I've heard that this is not just my problem, that a lot of people struggle with proofreading their own work. It's just to me, I also get to a point where I'm just, I don't want to say I'm bored with it, but I've looked at it so many times and I'm like, golly, I just can't look at this one more time. My new awesome review tool is that Microsoft Word under the function of review, it will actually read your essay out loud to you. And that's how I've been making my way through my proofreading. Have you ever done that before? Had the computer? I have not, and I did not know that that was an option. So I'm really interested to hear. <laughs> so you can choose like three or four different computer voices uh, to yeah. read your essay. But what I really like about it is that you know I've heard a lot of people talk about how your mind will kind of just gloss over those mistakes you've made that you yeah. just don't even see them anymore, right? It's something like you know what you meant to say, and so your brain just sees that. Yeah. But when I have the computer read it to me, and it's a weird awful Mr. Roboto voice, um, I hear all the mistakes. And I do maybe like seven pages at a time because that's all about I can that's about as much as I can tackle per day. But I have it read it out loud to me. And then I don't skip anything I hear um, when something sounds off because I found even when I try to like quote read my own paper to myself out loud, I still I put it down and then I'm kind of lazy about it and I lose track of where I was. So this actually has really worked for me. I, I felt like really happy with the copy I sent in for this last uh, chapter draft because I knew there were like no mistakes in it for once. But my family all thinks it's really weird and um, they find it really annoying. But yeah, I'm all for this reading. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the voice is just really funny. It's a computer generated voice and there's like four choices and they're all equally as bad. But that is my new hack. So it's really working for me. It takes a little more, I think in some ways, it's good to have to listen to something else read my work out loud to me because I know what I meant to say, but the computer doesn't. And when the computer struggles or stops, I know I'm off. So how are we doing? Are you still reading the, uh, is it Olive Kitterich? Is that the book? Yes, it is. And I am really enjoying it. I'm about a third maybe through it now and it's it's a very interesting setup of the novel I don't know have you read it um so okay this is so bad for an English professor to say I have not read it but HBO produced a mini series <laughs> a few years ago and I watched it and I, I think I binge watched it after the fact like I watched like three episodes and two episodes maybe it was only like a five-part series or something like that mm-hmm. and I, I found it I was found it very compelling so that would be really interesting to see how they work the narrative setup into a television show. What it is, is that it's 13 chapters that have different focal points. So they all take place in the same town in Maine, somewhere off the coast. But they're all about different characters. And Olive is just sort of the red thread, the one component that ties them all together. She kind of shows up in each of the chapters, um, but she's only the main character so far in one of the chapters that I've read. So all the other chapters are actually about other people who also live in this town that somehow share their perspective on Olive um, or are somehow connected to her in other ways. In one narrative, you know, there's just an older couple that goes to church and Olive and her husband are also there, so they're just briefly sort of they see her, they say hi, but that's the only connection that there is with Olive. So it's more like reading 12 short stories that have this connecting character in them than it is like reading an actual novel, which I'm not, you know, you know that I like to say that I don't really like movies all that much. I prefer television shows because it just takes so much energy to get to know a person and then you're done with them after 90 minutes or two hours. I don't like that about movies. I like television shows where I really dive into the story, get to know the character, learn about their lives, um, maybe see some changes in the character. So television shows and novels kind of play into that a little bit more. So I'm actually kind of surprised by how much I'm enjoying the book. The writing is really beautiful and clever at times. And so I definitely recommend it to you, especially with your love of short stories. But really, I'd recommend it to anyone who enjoys literary fiction. The way you're describing it sounds much different. And I did watch this. I think it was on maybe three or four years ago. But the way you're describing it, it makes it sound amazing and like right up my 
narrative alley, so to speak. So if we are able to see each other in person one of these days, how about I uh, trade you for the White Oleander um, novel? Because that's also a film as well. So I did read that for some summer reading, and that's also a film. So I'm not going to really talk about that because I think it's a pretty well-known film now. But Mm -hmm. I found that to be, it's a dense, deep, interesting read as well. So what you're describing in the book sounds a bit more interesting to me. I really enjoyed the um, HBO miniseries because it was Frances McDormand, who is just like the best actress ever. And it was really great. But what you're describing to me from a narratological point of view sounds pretty amazing. So I'll have to trade with you for sure. Um, so I think I have was, white uh, Oleander yeah. on my list, so I have I, it. My, I, so I'm happy to trade for that one. <laughs> um, so I think maybe we should wrap things up today because I hear people outside my door, and um, I think this is a really good, helpful episode for anyone that's kind of still in the trenches, or even possibly you came to this podcast thinking, "Well, I'm not a PhD student yet, but I'm thinking about doing this." And we'd love to hear from people outside of the humanities. We don't want this necessarily just to be a humanities driven conversation. Um, So I'm very curious to hear what other tips and ideas people in fields in the sciences might offer. Yes. Thank you all for listening. Um, It's been a blast. This was a really interesting conversation, Erin. I would love to hear from people what they, you know, what they thought about today's episode, what resonated with them, what were some things that we didn't mention today that they would have liked to know about before they entered the program. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at PhD in Parenting, and you can also shoot us an email at PhD in Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, we hope you'll tune in and give us a listen when we'll be talking about traveling with children as part of your academic duties and responsibilities. Thanks again for listening.